a wise person told me recently that a child's birthday is just as important to a mother as it is to the child. That the child's birthday is just as important to the mother as it is to the child. Now, at first, hearing this, I thought, what? But then I thought about it, and I agreed. All that a mother goes through to give birth, the carrying of the child for the months beforehand. Our birthdays really should be a reminder that none of us exist to ourselves. That there are others who are responsible for us, to whom we owe a great due for our our existence. It's the same for the church's birthday. So Pentecost is the 50th day after Jesus' resurrection, the day of the coming of God's Spirit to fill and give birth to the church. The Spirit is the church's mother. The Spirit gives birth to the church. It should be obvious from the start that the church does not exist for itself, but it exists for God and for the world that Jesus came to save. We don't exist to ourselves. We exist because of God and for God and for the world that he came to save. We're going to begin this morning with the story in Genesis 11 that Matt read for us. Luke, the author of Acts, which the the other passage from Nancy was uh, Acts chapter 2. Luke writes this story of the first Pentecost as a reversal of sorts. A reversal of the story of Babel. So I I love when we get to pair these scriptures together that correspond so well. The Bible is this amazing book written over over a thousand years and recording even more years of history. And yet passages that are as far from each other as Genesis and uh, Acts or even Genesis and Revelation correspond to one another very carefully. And so Acts is written in this passage as a reversal of the story we heard in Genesis chapter 11. Now, I'd like you, if you have your Bible, to open it to Genesis chapter 11 so that you can follow along. But before we jump in, there's something I I want us to notice. Genesis 11 and Acts chapter 2 are both about a type of unity within humanity. About a group of people who are committed to a common cause. So Genesis 11 verse 1 starts out this way. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Well, that's unity, isn't it? The the whole, the same language, the common words. And we know how important that language is to a people. Look, if you say Shenandoah instead of Shenandoah, you speak the same language. Language isn't just about words, but it carries a culture in itself. These people not only speak the same, they think the same. This is important. Acts 2 starts in nearly the exact same way. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were all together in one place. They were unified. They were together. Now, Genesis 11 is showing us the kind of unity that comes about apart from God. And this, hear me, Genesis 11 is going to show us a kind of unity that occurs apart from God. 
People in the, you don't have to have God to be unified with a group of people. You can be unified around any cause. You don't have to be, have God for that. Acts 2 shows us a kind of unity that happens through the spirit of Jesus. Okay? These are two different types of unity that we're looking at. So this is where we're going to focus our energy around this question. What is spirit-filled unity? That's the question we're going to try to answer from these passages. What is a spirit-filled unity? The Genesis story tells us what it isn't. And the Acts story tells us what it is. What is spirit-filled unity? The first answer, it is not fearful protection. It is not fearful protection. So Babel is usually told as a story of human pride. And that's true in a way, but that's not all that's going on. That, that's a limited view of it. The more explicit motivator for what this, these people do, this project they take on, the more explicit motivator is fear. And I'm going to draw this out from the passage in a minute. But for now, we need to know that fear and pride are two sides of the same humanity. Let's just think about these two items together first. Fear and pride are two sides of the same humanity. Because they're so closely related, all of us can go from one to the other at lightning speed. We all know this. Adults, teenagers, children. One minute we're fearful and the next we're puffed up like you couldn't believe we could take on the world. How does this happen? Well, fear recognizes our fragility. Uh, there's some honesty to it. Fear is not always a bad thing. It, it can be a very honest thing. It recognizes our fragility, our shortcomings. Pride tries to eliminate fear by beginning to puff us up. We, don't, we try to push down fear and raise up this uh, confidence, but in the process we get puffed up. We're like a balloon. We're deflated in fear and we're inflated with pride. The project at Babel begins in fear, and then it moves forward in pride. So this time period that in which Babel is taking place, this story comes to us, it's a lot like ours. Human technology is advancing at a rapid pace. So there's this advent of brick making, and they are discovering new possibilities. And any time humans start to do this, there's the opportunity for fear and pride. So at some point, the idea is raised to build a city with a tower that reaches into the sky. This could mean a couple of things. It could be a reference to a, a, an ancient ziggurat, a temple. This is these steep temples with stairs that go way up to the top. Or it could also be a reference to a place where priests would go to get close to the heavens. And there they would do astronomy, astro astronomy right? Astrology, excuse me. Katie has to help me with this sometimes. I get mixed up. And they would go and they would study the stars and make prophecies about when the rain was going to come. Now, this was amazing in these cultures. The priests, simply because they were the ones who would prophesy when the rains were coming and they lived in an agricultural economy, the priests controlled the cities completely by this. These were the good old days, right? Where the priests could just run everything. I'm just kidding. This is not... So it's one of one or these two things. It's this ancient ziggurat where they would worship or it's where priests would go to study the heavens and figure out when the rains were coming and when their crops would produce all these sorts of things. 
Either way, why are they doing it? Is this a virtuous desire to connect to God? Is that what's going on here? Listen carefully to the reason in verse four. Follow along if you have your Bible in front of you. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There are a couple of what I think are really fascinating things about this, this reason they give. One is the idea of these people making a name for himself, for themselves. We know this language, right? We, we use this language about a person making a name for themselves. They become known because they're good at something in particular. But naming in the Bible is a sacred duty. It's a symbol of authority. This is why humans in Genesis get to name the animals, because they are given stewardship over the animals, oversight of them. But one thing humans never get to name themselves. <laughs> humans do not get to name themselves. You, you read throughout Genesis and someone gets a name and that name has something to do about their character, something they're to live into. They didn't get it themselves. They were given that name. Now, every now and then God changes someone's name and calls them to live into that name, Abraham. He's named Abram and then given the name Abraham so that he will become a father of many nations. He's going to, God gives him this special calling and he's going to live into this. Humans never get to name themselves because humans don't have authority over themselves. Someone else has authority over them. To try to name yourself is an act of fearful pride in itself. You're fearful that your given name is not good enough. And you're prideful enough to think that you know best how to get a new one. Now, verse five tells us the only name that these people end up earning for themselves. If you look at verse five, they are called children of man. This is actually a name. You see what this is, means is children of Adam. Man is the word for Adam, the first man. In other words, when these, this, this group of people, when they try to make a name for themselves independent of God, they behave like their father, Adam. Adam took the fruit for himself and rebelled against God. And in aiming to make a name for themselves, the only thing this group of people become notorious for is rebellion. Rebellion. This is the name they make for themselves. You're just like your father, Adam, who rebelled against God. Now, one more fascinating thing about their reason for building the tower. They do it lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is interesting because God specifically told humans to fill the earth. To fill the earth. Spread out, multiply, fill the earth. This was the original Great Commission. God wants the whole earth to be full of his image bearers. So they would need to fill out. They would need to spread out. This group of humans, though, in their fearful pride, they deliberately disobey God. The tower is their contingency plan. If we're dispersed, we can see it and we can get back to each other. Now, in verse six, something odd happens. God acknowledges their unified strength. They're one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. 
I find the way that God responds to us this a little bit odd at first. He recognizes their unified strength and then he undercuts it by dividing their language. Why, why does God do this? Why would God inhibit the prowess of man? Now, I think that we should know this is not always the way that God works in these situations. This is not always the way that God works in these situations. Babel is used for us as an illustration. It's an example of what happens when we live in a particular way. God is showing us the logical conclusion of trying to live independent of him. Any project that starts in fearful protection will result in this same confusion and chaos. Even if God had let Babel play out longer, say he decided not to overthrow it completely. With all their fear and pride, these folks would have eventually turned against each other. <laughs> Look, they had no guiding moral compass. They were committed to no project except themselves. What happens with that? Eventually, they turn against each other. Eventually, that project crumbles beneath its own weight. God is simply making it very obvious in this case that confusion and chaos are the logical outcome to these sorts of endeavors. He's warning us. He's saying, don't live like this. It may not happen to you as fast as it did to Babel, but it will happen. Ironically, the people who build the tower end up with the situation they most feared. Now, if you have your Bible, I hope you'll underline these passages. It's just striking. Look at the end of verse 4. Their fear was, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What happens to them? Look at the end of, look at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth. If that's not enough, hear it again in verse 9. From there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God gave them exactly what they feared. Why does he do it this way? Again, this is an example for us. If we live in a mode of fearful and prideful protection, our worst fears will in some way come true. They will. We will be arrested by our fears and we will lose the fruitful and thriving life that we truly desire. That's what God's warning us about. We cannot live in a mode of fearful and prideful self-protection. The Tower of Babel is showing us a false kind of unity that is built around fear and is built around pride. But humanity needs something else to unite around if it is to thrive. Something different. So what is spirit-filled unity? It, it's not a fearful protection. What is it? It is courageous movement. It is courageous movement. 
So in Genesis 11, the people want to stay in one place, don't they? God said in the Great Commission, the first Great Commission, he says, go and fill the earth. They don't want to do that. They want to huddle up, stay close, and build a monument to themselves. We have a similar problem in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember after Jesus died, the disciples were very afraid. Remember this? They were afraid the authorities would do to them what they did to Jesus. So they mostly hid away in their homes. The disciples were huddled up and Jesus has to go through the door because the door is locked. But Jesus comes to them. He rose. He comes to them. He says to them, peace. It's okay. He promises them he's going to send them his spirit to give them strength and enable them to be his witnesses. So then he ascends. Now, until the spirit comes, the disciples are back huddled together in a room waiting for something to happen. Listen, we should be assured of this. Without the spirit, the church never would have started. Started. It never would have started. The disciples were not stubborn, unstoppable rebels. They were not. They were fearful fishermen. But something happened. And when it happened, it drove them out of a room and into a city and into the world with the news of God's kingdom. God's original great commission to fill the earth is repeated by Jesus as the disciples commission with a slight twist. Go into all the world and make disciples. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. You know, churches are tempted toward fearful protection, often for good reasons. We have to be careful to guard the church and our children from sin, from the world. To keep the church holy, to keep our children holy. We also want to preserve the intimacy of our church. What happens if people come in and mess this up? But when these concerns are overplayed and these good desires become idols, church can die from within itself. There are churches who have taken the road of fearful protection. They've protected themselves from all the things that they feared the most. But in the end, they died. If it wasn't a physical death, it was a spiritual death. And I'm not suggesting we don't need to protect the church or protect our children. Obviously, those things are important. But God has given us ways of doing that by holding each other accountable to holiness, by loving and teaching our children scripture. What this doesn't mean, though, this kind of protection, is that we turn in on ourselves. Here's the beautiful thing about the church compared with Babel. Babel became an insular environment. Let's stay here. Let's build this thing for ourselves. There wasn't an open-armed welcome to people from the outside, it doesn't seem. The posture was turned inward. But the Spirit somehow enables the church to be both holy and yet a posture of open welcome toward the world. Won't you come into the kingdom? Won't you come? 
Spirit-filled unity is a courageous movement outward toward the world. It's not fearful protection. Some of us, in order to experience the power of the Spirit, need to move outward in some way in our world toward people. We need to open our hearts in love toward people with the gospel. It doesn't mean compromising anything about Christ, about morality, but it does mean holding our hands open toward them, welcoming them. So spirit-filled unity, it's not fearful protection, it is this courageous movement. And lastly, spirit-filled unity is unity, not uniformity. It's unity, not uniformity. We're going to be really disappointed if we think that the reversal of Babel should mean humanity again speaks one language. We can just get back to before they did that. That's not what happens in Acts. Neither is it what happens in Revelation. You know, when everyone, all the nations gather before the throne of God and sing to the Lamb, they're all still singing in their language. God has placed an infinite amount of variety within his creation. All you have to do is read Genesis 1 about all the seeds according to their kinds or the animals according to their kinds or the birds. There's this ongoing diversity. And it was in the psalm that Heidi read for us, the creatures innumerable in the sea. God has created the whole world, all of creation, uh, humanity with endless diversity. And in fact, one of the problems is at, ba at Babel is they tried to erase all diversity. To create a city where people not only spoke the same language, but they all thought the same thoughts. There was no one at Babel who could say, is this tower a good idea? Because they all thought the same thing. Difference was eliminated. But the church does not eliminate differences. Instead, this is the beauty of the church. The spirit unites people in their differences. This is the miracle of Pentecost, that all of a sudden people of great differences can agree on something and they can understand each other on something that Jesus is Lord. This is spirit filled unity. But it's not uniformity. These people maintain their languages. They maintain aspects of their culture and they bring all of these things under the lordship of Christ. So the church has sometimes been guilty of seeking this kind of uniformity instead of real unity. Of insisting that we all have to have the same political views and the same theological views on everything. Now, to be clear, there are theological views that we must agree on to be a real body of Christ. There are. For instance, beliefs about scripture's authority over, over our lives. We, we need to agree on that. Otherwise, we are going to have trouble living together. Beliefs about morality and the way that we should live, behave in the world. We need to be able to agree on many of these things. We call these beliefs essentials, essential beliefs. But there are others that are non-essentials. Uh, so how exactly to interpret Genesis 1 in the days of creation, these sorts of things. 
how exactly to understand the fine-tuned workings of salvation. Some of these things we could call non-essentials or what political party you should be a part of. The way we know the difference between essentials and non-essentials is through scripture and through things like the creeds which hold together the beliefs that all Christians in all places have held in agreement. This has been well expressed in a motto of church history, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. In essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity church becomes this gorgeous picture of God's creation when people of all sorts of perspectives and backgrounds can come together under one roof and say together, Jesus is Lord. Still knowing that there are things that we disagree on, but knowing that we love each other and we love Christ and we worship him as king. What is a spirit-filled unity? It's not fearful, prideful, protectionism. It is a kind of unity around Christ. You know, the first Pentecost was spectacular. The mighty wind, the tongues of fire, the miracle of tongues, the 3,000 conversions. But the effects of Pentecost are not always spectacular and and impressive in this way. Even when they're simple, like a group of people who otherwise, aside from church, we would not hang out together. That is a miracle. That is impressive. The spirit is given so that we together can live full, abundant and joyful, obedient lives. The spirit is given so that we can be fully human. And contribute toward a community that becomes a preview of the world to come. This is spirit filled. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.